This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Hi, folks. Welcome to the Cybertrap Podcast. I'm Jethro Jones, former principal, host of the Transformative Principal Podcast, and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People. I'm attorney and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cyber Traps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I are teaming up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. And over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the nation's leading experts in the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and Violence Prevention is our guest today, and Cyber Safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. Belatedly here, but I'm here today, <laughs> Jethro. <laughs> well, it's just good that we're here. I mean, that's that's what matters first and foremost. So it's, uh, it's going to be a good conversation, as it always is. Yes, well, I'm very excited. This is uh, another opportunity for me to bring forward as a guest somebody that I've known for a while, Dr. Jeff Temple. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. I'm kind of surprised that in your intro, you don't talk about your appearance on Jon Stewart's Daily Show. <laughs> See, this is why I love having you on. <laughs> well, we'll get to that at some point, but let me do a brief bit of background for you, Jeff, and then we'll launch the Conversation. Our guest today, Dr. Jeff Temple, is a professor, licensed psychologist, and the founding director of the Center for Violence Prevention at the University of Texas Medical Branch. His research focuses on the prevention of interpersonal, community, and structural violence, and has been funded through the National Institute of Justice, the National Institutes of Health, and Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He has over 200 scholarly publications in a variety of high-impact journals, he recently co-edited a book on adolescent dating violence, is an associate editor for the Journal of Primary Prevention, and is on the editorial boards for five other scientific journals. Most recently, Dr. Temple co-chaired a task Texas Task Force on Domestic Violence and served on the board of directors of the Texas Psychological Association. And in an activity near and dear to my heart, he served as vice president of the Galveston Independent School District Board of Trustees. His work has been featured on CNN, New York Times, Time Magazine, Washington Post, and yeah, you can point to John Stewart, but this is the one I'm jealous of, even in the satirical website, The Onion. What? So, welcome, <laughs> Jeff. That is a that is an impressive resume, and it makes us even more grateful you're taking time to talk with us today. Yes. No, I appreciate being on, and I'll also say that I think the Onion article was the only thing my kids ever cared about uh <laughs> and it's been on twice now they've uh, they they've poked fun at my research oh that's wonderful well <laughs> that's a perfect segue why don't you tell us what they were making fun of 
<laughs> sure. So uh, I've done a couple of different streams of research. Uh, as you mentioned, dating violence and the intersection of, of dating violence and substance use. And especially when I talk about dating violence, especially with teens and, uh, and how they form relationships, how they go bad, how they go good, and what makes them go good and bad. And then the other stream of research that, uh, that you and I started to interact with is my research on sexting. So we are one of the first groups to um, have something empirical published on sexting. It was a uh, 2012 uh, article that was looking at both the prevalence of sexting and uh, some of the associations with real-life sexual behavior. And so in, in this case, the Onion article was basically like, uh, it was those three interviews where that they, you know, those fake interviews. And it was, uh, I can't believe that, that, you know, these people are having sex in real life and they're not sexting. Like, what are they, some weirdos, you know? So, it, it was it was good stuff. It was fun, but yeah, no, we that whole track when that came out, it was 2012 that study, and uh, it really lifted off in terms of being, I think, every single major news and media outlet picked up that study. I did, and and I'm sure y'all are, are are used to this with your books, but I did this basically a radio marathon for like two or three days where I was just back to back talking to folks. And uh, at, at the time, I think it was our university said that it reached over 600 million people worldwide, that study. And that at the time, it was the most uh, public publicity that any UTMB research had ever uh, encountered until a couple years later when we were instrumental in Ebola. Uh, and so, and I tell this joke often that I was really hoping that that nurse who was quarantined in Maine would have sexted someone so that UTMB could have cornered the market, the media market in terms of Ebola and sexting. <laughs> well, that's, that's a combination. I don't think we want to pursue too far, but <laughs> I understand your point. My hope is that, you know, some reasonable fraction of those 600 million people will want to follow up. Uh, to know what you're doing, so we'll we'll try to reach out to them. But I think what's interesting, yeah, Jeff, is that um, you know the term sexting actually was invented by a Globe and Mail reporter back in 2004, and so obviously um, you know you guys get on board with the phenomenon of eight years later. Uh, it's clearly creeping into the zeitgeist at that point. Um, what what led you to develop a study on it from a scientific perspective, and, and how did you go about doing it? Yeah, no, so it was actually, I was at the time, and I'm actually still doing this study. In 2010, I got funding from National Institute of Health to do a longitudinal, so long-term study on the risk and protective factors of dating violence. And, uh, and so we've been doing this since 2010 with the same about 1,000 kids at the time. They were all freshmen and sophomore in high school. And we now have been following them for 10 years. And I actually got uh, funding from National Institute of Justice to extend the study then. And then recently, we got funding to extend it for an additional five years. Uh, in, in fact, Fred, you don't know this, but the last time we were together is uh, right before I went up to talk is when I received word that I got that funding. So... Uh, it was a pretty exciting day in San Antonio for me. <laughs> yeah, so we, we got funding to, but we now have it for 15 years where we're following the same group of people for 15 years. And this time we're also including their current partners. And it's really to get a better understanding. The, the study itself is called Dating It Safe. And it's uh, to get a better understanding of, uh, of again, the, the course of relationships, of dating violence. And, and so back to your question, it was in between the first and second year of this study where I was actually in a hotel room in Dallas, Texas, and uh, getting ready to uh, give a talk or something the next day. And I was sitting there and I was watching the news. So this would have been 2011, I guess. Uh, and uh, something on the news started talking about sexting and how it was going, you know, that it was this new phenomenon, a new craze, and uh, it's going to end the world and all kids are terrible people and all this. And, and I was thinking, you know, I don't know if... I don't know if anyone's looked at this. And so I, in the, in the hotel room, I, I looked it up and uh, there was I, no empirical research on sexting. So I, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm the second year of our survey is about to hit. 
I'm going to add four questions on sexting. And uh, so right in the hotel room, one of the good things about being the one of the first to investigate something is there's not a whole lot of literature to review. So I made up questions and uh, for better and worse, uh, uh, I'll give examples of why it's a bad idea to make up questions at a hotel room in Dallas. But it was basically, have you sent a naked picture of yourself to another teen? Have you asked someone to send and have you been asked? And then the last question, which was a stupid question, we could get into that is, uh, if you have been asked, uh, were you bothered by being asked? And so what we published from that is, uh, you know, a year later, we, we published the results and it was 28% of boys, 28% of girls had reported sending a naked picture of themselves. And this was in 2012, mind you. So this was a, quite a while ago when, you know, smartphones were only, in, you know, around for a few years at that point. Uh, and we also <laughs> found that probably not a surprise to anyone that it was related to sexual behavior, uh, real life sexual behavior. So that, so the kids who had sexted were about twice as likely to have reported real life sexual behavior versus those who had not sexted. And so the next step was that, and we, we can talk about this later is kind of the, well, what came first, right? The chicken or the egg and, and, and back to why it was a stupid question just to, to fill that fill that hole is a lot of the media picked it up and uh, not blaming the media, it was my fault, is uh, teens bothered by sexting doing it anyway. Well, the problem with that is I didn't kind of get any context over what, what, what they were bothered by, right? So uh, whether what bothered meant, was it harassed, was it embarrassed? Uh, who they were bothered by asking. Maybe if the star quarterback asked them to send something, they weren't bothered. But maybe if that creepy guy in math class asked, they were bothered. So, uh, so it was a bad question, and we since improved on that. And, and the research since then has, has gotten a lot more nuanced and better. You know, we've learned a lot as a field. I've learned a lot as a researcher that it looks different when we look at consensual sexting versus coerced or pressured sexting. What is it that, so over the last eight years, since you started doing that study, um, the age of kids having phones has gone down significantly. And you started with kids who were freshmen, sophomore in high school. Um, are you reevaluating with a younger cohort of people or is that somebody else that's taking care of that? What, and what is the impact of kids having devices earlier and how is that impacting us? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I'll get to it. I might circumnavigate a bit, but I'm going to get to answering that is uh, you're right. So we started with high school students and what we saw was basically with our cohort that it pretty much, increased a little bit and then plateaued by the time they were seniors in high school. Uh, now, one, one of the other things that the media picks up on a lot is you'll hear sexting is increasing. Well, that's not necessarily true. What's happening there is that as time went on, more kids got smartphones and the age of ownership got younger. So I guess technically it is increasing, but only because of the ubiquity of smartphones. And so what we did recently is we did a, uh, a, a short answer to your question. Yes, the, uh, the younger kids getting it, we're only going to see sexting increase. Uh, it's not as high as uh, just like with real sex, you kind of think of this as uh, following the same trajectory as real life sexual behavior. So there are some middle school students that do it. It's the percentage is going to be a lot less than high school which is going to be less than college. So it, it kind of follows that same trajectory, if you will. Uh, but in the meta-analysis that we did recently uh, it with uh, Dr. Madigan out of the University of Calgary, one of the things that we, we saw that was really interesting is that, uh, that it increased with age, as you would expect, and it also increased as the, uh, with, with time, so w when the study was published. So... Uh, you, you know, it's, again, the increase, I think, is related to the ubiquity of smartphones, not necessarily as something that is becoming more intense. Well, this, Jeff, actually touches on something that Jethro and I talk about a fair amount, and, and I advocate with parents <laughs> with some frequency, which is this idea of um, 
trying to provide kids with what I describe as the least feasible technology to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. And it, it's sort of the, the flip side of what you're saying in the sense that if you're going to give kids smartphones at a younger and younger age, there is a chance they're going to start playing doctor with them, which is effectively what they're doing. And so parents need to think through whether or not they want to give children that capability. And I guess the other question I would have, um, because we also talk about this idea of, you know, goodnight cell phone or, or a family charging station or something like that. Does your study get at when in the course of a 24-hour period these behaviors tend to take place? Or is it is it just kind of a general question? Yeah, we we our studies do not. It's more of a general past year, past month type questions. But I do believe there are uh, some some research out there that's getting at this. I know that uh, Dr. Underwood is at Purdue now. She did a really neat study a while back, and I have not followed up on if they've done if they've replicated this. Is where they gave kids smartphones. And with the understanding that they were going to uh, be able to measure what happened, what they're texting each other. So they got to, you know, they could pick a couple week period. I think they did around Valentine's Day, if I remember correctly, where they then looked and saw what kids were, were texting or sexting each other. And so I, I think if we, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I'm pretty sure that that study for the listeners, if they want to look up Marion Underwood, a really neat study that I, I think that there's probably some detail into that. My guess is it's in the evening. Yeah, well, I, that's certainly the the supposition that I'm I'm discussing with parents is that, yeah, things tend to happen at two in the morning that would not happen at two in the afternoon. I, I think it's hard. You know, someone that is, a, and I'm being a bit tangential, I apologize, Fred, but, uh, you know, as, as someone with two teenagers myself, uh, it it's easy to say you're going to do that. It's a lot harder to police uh, and, and not just, you know, just it's, it's tough. The, the smartphone has become part of our lives and part of their lives and how they communicate, not just with friends and boyfriends and girlfriends, but you know, their teachers and, and schoolwork. And so it's, it's, I, I think it's easier said than done. Uh, it's certainly something that I suggest, but sometimes I uh, don't practice what I preach. So say that to give uh, parents, you know, who probably feel bad enough during the pandemic that they're not necessarily terrible people for not doing that. <laughs> well, right. It, no, no, absolutely, Jeff. And that's completely what we're trying to avoid here. I think there's there's non-pandemic parenting and then there's pandemic parenting and they're not exactly the same. Um, the other thing I will say, and, and I'm very cognizant of this, that it was a lot easier for me because my kids are all 23 and up. So the time frame is a lot different. What I will say from a practical point of view, and certainly Jethro has, has touched on this a lot, is that it's certainly easier when the kids are younger, number one. And then secondly, if, if, you're at a point in, in your family's development where these habits can be started early, then they, they will probably last longer. But you're absolutely right. I mean, with, with the, what, what are they calling them, the fat phones and the phablets and all the rest of that, there's a blurring of computers and smartphones and kids are doing a lot of work on their smartphones or their tablets. I mean, Jethro has frontline experience on this. So yeah, it does. It gets very, very difficult. And I think that's where we messed up as parents is probably not getting in that habit right away. And uh, uh, But I do tell my kids that if they ever sex, that I'm going to give a talk at their schools on sexting. So uh, hopefully that'll. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> that, that is the best consequence I've ever heard. <laughs> Wait, what? Okay, never mind. <laughs> I will not do this. That's great, Jeff. It's interesting as a school principal, what I've seen is, uh, over the past several years, this uh, prevalence in almost every issue at school having something to do with kids having smartphones. And it, it's so fascinating to see that almost nobody without a smartphone gets into trouble. And that is a broad generalization with no research to back it up, except just my anecdotal experience. But as you mentioned, these devices make it possible for kids to do things that they that they wouldn't 
normally do otherwise. And, and what's so interesting is that they, they can take a few more risks on the phone that they wouldn't necessarily take in person. And so going back to your point about the question of the egg, I'm not sure which it is, but there, there, there is a correlation and I, I don't know totally what that is, but I've definitely seen that um, as, as I've been a principal. And so my question about that is with that being the case, we can talk about these plans and what we can do, but how do we actually help kids um, make better choices about that? And, um, and, and how do we help them develop the skills needed to know how to say no and, and stop that when they do feel uncomfortable by it? Yeah. And if I could just address a couple of things that you said, I, I think it's interesting that, you know, like with smartphones and, 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 they're almost always related to whatever's going on, fighting, bullying, uh, sexual stuff. But if we look at, you know, we tend to, I think, uh, and, I, and I know you, you weren't doing this, but kind of demonize adolescents. But if you look at things like divorce records uh, for adults, I don't know what the exact stat is, but I think it's like half of them now mention Facebook in there. Are some, so, so it's not just adolescents that are doing these things. It's that are using smartphones for this way. And the other thing I would say is uh, I do agree that smartphones have made it, uh, you know, like the anonymity of it, the not being able to read nonverbal cues, it makes some behaviors more likely. Uh, I would also say that it makes behaviors that we've always done as teens more uh, open to the public. So, you know, I think that there's, with respect to sexting, right? Uh, you know, there's always been a show and tell or even Polaroid pictures. It's just, you know, it's different with the Polaroid picture, you know, as you're waiting for the film to develop, you can say, okay, wait, what the hell am I doing? Or even if you get it out there, the most people are gonna see it is what, 10? You know, I think that's the difference with smartphones is that not only are we making the same stupid choices we've always made as kids, but now it can be with impulsivity, Can you can put it out into the world, and now we risk millions of people seeing it. When this was first happening, I asked my wife and said, hey, would you have, uh, you know, I was, I was actually getting ready to go on to Canadian broadcast. That morning, it was a Saturday morning, we're eating breakfast. And I said, hey, would, you know, Ann, would you have, uh, would you have done this as a kid? And she like said, well, absolutely. And I, <laughs> so, so, uh, so we started talking about that. And, uh, and so anyway, I shared that story with Canada. So they, uh, they know my wife would have. Um, but I think to the point is, I, you know, I think that kids have always done and will always do stupid stuff. And adults, too. You know, uh, uh, they're sexting as well. And they're cheating and sending naked pictures of themselves to people who aren't their, you know, husband or wife. And so it, it's happening all over the place. Now, back to your original question, Jethro, I, I think that we can't uh, police as much as we would want. Like kids are smarter than us. I think they're kind of like little terrorists. They'll figure out a way to get around it. You know, the shoe bomber, underwear bomber, and they're, they're kind of that way. And if you, and, and, both of you know more about this than I do, uh, especially Fred, is this, uh, you know, like the smartphones, they have ways to, you know, they have Finstagram, they're fake Instagram, so their parents think they're following them, but they're not. They have these calculator apps, which I'm sure y'all are aware of, that uh, acts as a calculator and works as a calculator, but you put your password in and that's where you can store your videos and, and pictures. So it's really difficult to police it. I, you know, we definitely need to make those strategies, but I do think we're also playing a bit of whack-a-mole with uh, trying to police it because, you know, in, in three years, there's going to be hologram sex or something. And so by us trying to take this kind of whack-a-mole approach, I think it is backwards. I think what we have to do, uh, in fact, I'll say I know, it's not I think, we have to focus on improving and promoting relationships and healthy relationships and if we do that, if we can teach kids how to be in relationships, how to be healthy in relationships, not only are we going to decrease the amount that, are, that they're sexting, but we're also going to reduce things like substance use, which is highly related to relationships, risky sexual behavior in real life, and dating violence. So if we can 
improve, promote healthy relationships. If we can teach kids how to be in a relationship, we don't do that, right? We, we teach kids math and English and music and basketball and everything else, but we don't teach them the one skill that would probably, that is more important than anything else. And it's how to be in a relationship. So they learn, they learn by trial and error, which is, uh, you know, not the greatest way to learn, but you know, it's what we've been doing forever. They learn by uh, their friends and their friends typically aren't that good at relationships for the same reason they're not. They learn by the media, which is pretty terrible at uh, what relationships look like in real life. Uh, and then they learn by their parents, which may be good, but oftentimes even well-intentioned parents, you know, they might argue in front of the kids, but then they make up elsewhere. So the kids don't get to see how to resolve conflicts in a nonviolent way. And so uh, I, I think if we could teach kids how to apologize, how to uh, solve conflicts, because how to teach them how to be in conflicts, because conflicts aren't bad. It's just when they turn violent, they're bad. How to uh, break up with someone. You know, if we could do that sort of thing, we're going to prevent a lot of bad behaviors. And so that's really what my research focuses on is, is, is positive. And not just to avoid violence, not just to avoid bad decisions, but how to actually be healthy and happy in a relationship. Jeff, that that all makes a lot of sense. Let me let me ask you this, because I think it, it will lead to a couple of other topics that are worth exploring. It, the relationship training thing is brilliant. I mean, we would have to totally rewire our society to make that work. But apart from that, I think it's a really strong, a strong suggestion. We we don't teach those kinds of things very well. But it does seem as a starting place, particularly in the concept of sexting and um, violence within relationships that two of the core concepts would be power and consent and understanding what role those play in all of your relationships. So um, if you're being harassed by somebody for photos of a certain kind, you know, understanding that you don't have to consent to do that or that this is a power move by somebody and that if it's an if it's a mature you know equal relationship that's fine but if you're giving someone power over you because you share those photos then that's problematic and so one of the things that i wanted to explore with you a little bit because i do think it is important is the extent to which you found a gender divide in these behaviors um, either you know on the participatory end or the requesting end and how that plays out and then is there a connection between that and the violence work that you're doing? What we see with our meta-analysis, and so for, for your listeners, uh, a meta-analysis is when we look at everything that's been published or that's been, you know, all the studies that have been done on, say, sexting, and we put them together as sort of as if they're one study. So, for instance, when we did our meta-analysis on sexting, there were 39 studies on it. So we basically combined those, I'm being a little bit crude here, but combined those 39 studies with 110,000 participants. So basically our study, the meta-analysis included 110,000 participants. And what we found that there, there was not a lot of difference between females and males in terms of sending a naked picture. So in the, in the active form of sexting. Uh, but what we continue to find, and this probably isn't that surprising, is that girls are substantially more likely to be asked and guys are substantially more likely to ask. In, in my study in 2012, 2011, really, when you know smartphones weren't around that long, when sexing was kind of just starting to come up, there was 70% of girls had been asked to send a naked picture, uh, which I would bet if that study was done today it would be closer to 100%. Uh, uh, so it is out there a lot. So your, your point is, is well taken. And especially with respect to kind of this power and consent. And so we've done research preparing sexting coercion with real life sexual coercion. And just like we talked about earlier with the line between real life and online life is completely blurred right now. You know, and, and y'all know this more than anyone is, uh, the kids don't see the difference between online and offline life. It's all the same. And uh, what we see there is that, you know, that if if kids are getting pressured to sex, they're more likely to be pressured to have sex in real life. If they're pressuring others to sex, 
they're more likely to be pressing others in real life. So there is this this uh, this relationship between these two, and uh, and. You know, when we look at this, the studies and we look at the harmful effects of sexting, you know, immediately I think it's easy for us to say sexting's bad, sexting is going to harm kids. And, uh, you know, that's certainly, I think, the, the maybe the proper default. But what we've come to realize is that it's really the coercion and the non-consensual sexting that seems to be doing the most damage. And that's the stuff that we need to equip kids with not doing in the first place are if they are pressured, of course, like you said, is how to navigate those situations. And, and we know how, right? We, we've done this work with substance use uh, of how to negotiate that. And so, so, you know, that those are the type of things that we need to start working with kids on how to not to sound like Ronald, uh, Nancy Reagan, but how to say no and, uh, and, and, you know, how to do it in a way that you preserve your, your status as a teenager. I like what you said about not demonizing adolescents. I think that's really important. Um, and also recognizing that the action that we see, that we perseverate on and focus on, is not as bad as what leads up to it, which is that coercion and, and the power struggle that you're talking about. And to me, that is... Again, going back to my experience as a principal, when I would talk to kids who are involved in these kind of situations, the fact that they sent a naked picture was not nearly as bad as the fact that they felt they needed to send a picture, that they felt compelled to send a picture or coerced into sending a picture, because that sets up problems for the whole rest of their life. And if they feel like they have to do something just because somebody asked them to, then that is that is a real problem. And if I can just step on a soapbox for a minute here, um, that is part of the problem with our educational system is that we teach that you must be compliant and that that is the priority and the goal. And so rather than helping kids think about whether or not they should do what their teacher asks, we just say, I'm the adult and you have to do it. And that happens in the home, that happens in the school. And then what happens is then somebody else who could be perceived in a position of power, even if they're not really, says to do something and then they feel compelled or coerced into doing that. And to me, that is the real problem. And it's just tragic how people get stuck in these situations when if they just had the ability to say, actually, I don't have to do that and don't ask me for it again, it would make things a lot better. And, you know, and, and that's something that I think is really missing. I, I love what you said about that is I'm the adult and you have to do what I say. And I think that that's really important is we are in a position as adults to, we, we should want kids to, you know, let's, let's figure out how to resolve this as human beings, as, as colleagues in this, because I do think we, we, I mean, adolescents are, they're, they're smart. I mean, look at what happened at, you know, Marjorie Stoneman, at those kids. They've done more to challenge, regardless of how you feel about it, gun laws than we have in 100 years. They've done in two years. They're smarter than us. They are. And we need to give them that credit. And I, and I like the idea of working with them. And, and I like the idea that it's, it, you know, that it wasn't necessarily them sending the picture. It was what led them to sending the picture. And and back to, to Fred's question about genders as well, is, is we also see with sexting that same double standard with females and males, mm. that, that females are often, the girls are often the ones that are treated as, as sluts or whores, and, uh, and a male doing the same thing is not. Uh, and I do think schools tend to, uh, and I, I would be interested to hear your thoughts on this, Jethro, is I... You know, when a, a girl sends a picture to a guy and the guy then gets caught or sends it to other people, oftentimes it's the girl that gets in trouble. And, you know, that's, I think, unfortunate. You know, it's she was doing it under the uh, pretense that it was for him and then he shares it and she's the one that gets in trouble and gets, you know, demonized and say, why would you share that? And, uh, you know, so I, I think there's a lot of interesting layers there. Jeff, actually, I know um, a way to bring this together in the sense that um, one of the cases that got me inspired in working in this area was the Jesse Logan case out of Cincinnati in the late uh, 2000s. 
And uh, she went through exactly that experience, Jeff, where she had shared a, just a topless photo with a boyfriend at the time. They broke up. He redistributed it. They eventually found it in seven different Cincinnati area high schools. And she wound up so uh, emotionally uh, harmed and depressed by it that despite her efforts to serve as a positive role model going on TV to talk to kids about it, she ended up killing herself. And she went through all of those behaviors that you talked about. She was physically assaulted in the school. She was emotionally assaulted. It, it was really brutal. And it, it, I think ironically, and I, 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 you guys might know more firsthand, it seems to me that that double standard is diminishing if only because so many people are doing it, right? You're no longer the exception if you're sending out something like this. And I don't wanna argue that's a good thing, but it, it actually may turn the temperature down. The other thing that I think is, is really interesting about this is that if we start looking at these issues of power and control, then it's an easier conversation, I think, for parents to have than necessarily about sex or about nude photos, which very few parents really wanna to talk to their kids about. But if you're having a conversation with your kids about whether or not someone is trying to make you do something you don't want to do, that's a very different and hopefully easier conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And just to add the, the school perspective, every investigation I did into this led to somebody asking for a picture rather than somebody just sending one willy-nilly, except that a couple of situations where boys sent pictures of themselves yeah. were unsolicited and, and not wanted to begin with. But, but my experience has been that girls don't just send these for fun, that they are asked to um, by, by the boys. And so in that situation, um, and sometimes by girls too, it didn't come down to this girl was punished for sending it. This, we had the conversation with the boy. One, we said to the girl, like, you don't have to do this. And nobody, nobody should force you or make you feel like you have to, and you can talk to your parents or us and we can help you deal with that. But we had the conversation with the boy of you should not be asking for this from the girl. That's not uh, something that's appropriate. That's not, um, if you get this and then share it, there, there are other serious repercussions because you're all under 18. And that's, and that's a, another issue that I don't think we have time for today, but, but in those situations, um, I tried really hard to focus on that issue of what led to this actually happening. Um, because like you said, it's, it, it does matter that, that we're focusing on that other piece of it. Yeah. Uh, I, I like that a lot. I, I don't, I, I think you, I wish you could be replicated because I've heard other stories <laughs> anecdotally, but <laughs> schools, you know, picking on the, on the girl at Senate and leaving it at that. So uh, I, I know some are doing it right. I'm not, I don't mean to, to pick on all of them. I, I know there's a good amount of them doing it right as well. A lot of the schools. Are no, I'm right there with yeah. you. <laughs> I know it's unfortunate. And our policies are written that the girl would get in trouble because she's the one who did the act. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's part of the problem is that our school policies are not set up to protect the one who is the victim, which is the girl who's being harassed to send something to this boy or the boy who's being harassed to send something to this girl or other boys or whatever the case yep, may be. Yep. Absolutely. Spot on. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking of this, uh, and I don't know if this neither here nor there, but uh, Fred, when you mentioned that, you know, that more and more are doing it and uh, maybe the double standard is decreasing. I, I reminded me of something that uh, uh, Savage, you know, Savage Lovecast, he talked about several years ago and he's, he, he makes the claim that now, you know, presidents, they readily admit to, uh, smoking pot to inhaling and uh, and it doesn't set them back in terms of their political aspirations and his uh, uh, hypothesis was that in 30 years that that's kind of going to be the same thing with sexting that there's certainly going to be a period where it's not okay we saw it with uh, the representative in California uh, but in who was also the victim and she got you know uh, and but you know in 30 years maybe if you send it Send a picture. That's not the message we want to be telling kids, but but it might not be held against them. Well, and, and and actually, it's funny you mentioned that, Jeff, because that's a story I use all the time when I go out to lecture to people. Because I I know someone 
who's in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and a friend approached him about applying for a position in the office, but he was worried because 25 years ago he got busted for pot. And the guy, you know, my friend laughed at him and said, yeah, we would have to clear out the offices if that were disqualifying, <laughs> you know. So yeah. sadly, I think you're right. And honestly, you know, uh, you referenced uh, rep former Representative Katie Hill from California, who's the the victim. I mean, she she was hit by what I refer to as electronic sexual assault by a former yes. partner for, for political slash personal reasons. And I agree with you completely. I don't think someone who has that happen to them in, let's say, a decade will, will be jettisoned from Congress that quickly. Now, to be fair, political stuff came into play. I, I actually researched this a fair amount because that Katie Hill incident arose when Doug Jones was running against Roy Moore down in Alabama, who was facing charges of being an utter creep in malls. And so the Democrats couldn't rally to the defense of this young rep at that moment. But in another decade, I think you're right. It, it does go that Katie Hill does go back to a lot of things too. With the, the I like that you said there was an electronic sexual assault. Yeah, I like that term. That's that's well, it's it's interesting. I it's interesting. We I just reached out to somebody who rem reminded me I was at a conference. And there was an all-female panel, uh, women in tech, and they were objecting to the phrase revenge porn, which actually is relevant to the conversation we're having now, because that's often how people describe what happens when an ex-boyfriend gets rid of images. And the sense of it is that it's not always for revenge. It's often not pornography as that is typically defined, but what it is is electronic sexual assault, where somebody is using a digital image to assault someone else. I really like that term. And I certainly have been guilty of saying revenge porn in the past. Uh, and yeah, and that's absolutely right. I mean, it, it, it softens uh, what is actually happening. And we had a, we have a paper coming out soon that's, uh, that's really neat and it's uh, scary, but it is looking at, uh, slut pages is what they're called. So kind of like a, a, a Facebook, but for, you know, where you, you know, there's a case, I can't remember what university where they raped a girl and they put it on there and, uh, or that they just had consensual sex, but they didn't know they were being filmed and they put it on there. And, and, uh, and the damage that that does is, uh, it is electronic sexual assault. Uh, it, it just is, and, uh, and I like I like rephrasing it that way to give it its its strength. Well, that's great. Um, what I, I have a great blog post on that that I can send to you. You're more than welcome to use the phrase. In fact, I'd be honored. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Yes, absolutely. You just have to mention cyber traps every time you say it. That's all. Obviously, porn is so prevalent on the internet. There's it's so easy to find naked pictures on the internet. Why are people sexting um, with people they know, uh, especially, you know, if boys are asking like every girl they possibly know, why are they asking for people they know instead of just going and finding porn on the Internet? It's one of the reasons that probably that, that like Pornhub, one of the, the most in, uh, prevalent searches is amateur porn. Uh, you know, I, I think that, that there's a reason for that. I, I don't know if I know the psychology in that. Uh, I would say in terms of, of knowing someone, I, I think that it is like anything else, that it is exciting and uh, not condoning, but it's exciting, it's thrilling, it's scary, and that is what teenagers like to do. It's what adults like to do, to be honest. I mean, there's some, you know, like the, that guy who left his kid in the car, he was sexting. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and so that overtook, that became more important than the kid in his car and, and the kid ended up, you know, passing away. And so, you know, it just, uh, I, I think it's the excitement of it uh, and, and, you know, hoping to kind of score, so to speak. And actually, Jethro and Jeff, if I can jump in on this, because uh, when I was doing cyber traps for the young, and then later, actually, Jeff, when I think we started corresponding cyber traps for educators, 
you know, I was looking at this precise issue, and there are some studies out there now that are emerging that talk about the motivations for doing this kind of thing. And and to your point, Jethro, um, within the context of a quote-unquote relationship, it's a form of flirting, it's a form of sexual behavior between two individuals in the the mess that we call high school and middle school it's uh, oftentimes a solicitation for a relationship you know prove to me that you love me uh prove to me that you're willing to do this that kind of thing so again all of these power issues that we were talking about um and and jeff i have to say as i've gone through this conversation with you it is crystallized in my own head the the importance of understanding power in terms of these kinds of behaviors. I'm gonna to have to really think about that some more, but this has been very useful. I think that's right. And I, you answered that question a lot better than I did. Uh, you know, I've written papers on motive, motives for sexting and I don't know why I didn't go back to that because it's exactly what I would have said. It's how you answered it. So yeah, well done. But to the porn question too, Jethro, is, you know, it's scary, but I think we need to be teaching porn literacy in uh, school. And, you know, schools, that that's 10, 15, 20 years ahead of its time. But the pictures are out there. The porn is out there. Uh, and we need to talk to kids about healthy sex and healthy relationships. Not saying to have sex, but just saying what's happening in porn is not real sex. And, uh, and, and that's, you know, people have developed really nice curriculum on that. Emily Rothman out of Boston University has some great, a porn literacy program. Uh, so it's not an area I know, but uh, it's something that I, I think is ahead of its time. Well, I'm, uh, you know, this is my relatively bold take on all of this, Jeff, but there are three institutions that can teach our kids about sexual behavior. There's parents, there's the schools, and there's the adult industry. And so if the first two don't do it, the third will. Yes. And, and that's going to be a problem yeah, that's, you know, and, and it's funny. I go ahead. No, I was just going to say, yes, amen. I mean, that's, that's spot on. The thing I was going to say is that that is absolutely true. And I personally don't think that schools should be responsible for teaching that. But like you said, if the parents aren't going to, um, somebody needs to, I'd certainly prefer the school does it over the adult entertainment industry does it. And but at the same time, even better would be if the parents did it. Um, and I think you could also add in the the church or re- religious community or, you know, however you extend that piece, they could do it also. However, um, it, you know, in my own experiences with that, they don't know how to do that either. And, you know, I, I think that this, in order to protect our kids in, in many ways, we need to take a much more holistic approach and, Certainly, it starts in the family, but other groups need to be involved in that, especially people that you can trust, you know, to to say the right things and to be good role models and all that kind of stuff as well. Uh, yeah, and it, it, the belt and suspenders approach is how I, I you know, we in Texas, I have to, uh, you know, we work with understandably uh, conservative legislators who say that's the family's job. And, and I don't disagree. But my thing is that we need to take a belt and suspenders approach that, yes, the family, that is the role. But just in case, let's also do it at the schools or the church or the community. Yeah, Jeff, I'll say that um, I don't have the, um, the academic credentials to say this, but it feels to me like we're doing this longitudinal study on our kids in terms of exposure to adult materials, because over the last 20 plus years, the amount of exposure has grown dramatically. And I actually think, and we probably don't have time to unpeel all of this, but I do think it contributes to the sexting um, you study. And then I think there's also that contributes to relationship violence issues. Um, because of the modeling that they're seeing, the you know the unfortunate reality being that the content is getting more extreme um, by a very natural Darwinian selection process, which again we don't need to go into. Yeah. Um, but these are real issues that we're going to have to sort out as educators and. Yeah. And that's why I think going back to to if we can focus on 
the, you know, it, it, historically academics have done a pretty poor job and, and schools too, of looking at all these different things in silos, right? So, you know, schools have a week on bullying, a week on uh, an assembly on uh, sexting, something on violence, something on substance use, when really, if we can target the shared risk and protective factors of multiple problem behaviors, I think, and that's, that's where the sweet spot is. And, and, and that's where I think relationships and focusing on relationships if we could teach kids relationship skills, then maybe we can curtail all of those risky behaviors at once, as opposed to dealing with them in silos. And so that's, that's what I was talking to Jethro before we got on air about the fourth R that's a healthy relationships program. So reading, writing, arithmetic, the fourth R is relationships. That's the program that I have uh, used quite a bit in schools in the U S uh, uh, and it, again, teaches kids in a class format uh, with interactive lessons, role-playing, how to be in healthy relationships. Well, Jeff, that is a terrific place to leave this. Uh, This has been really, really fascinating. I'm amazed at how much territory we covered in a fairly short time. So thank you so much for being with us today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you all for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and as we did today, the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of interesting experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast in all your favorite podcast players, and we hope that you'll share the show with your friends and college and reach out to a, did I say college? I meant, we hope you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you are on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have enjoyed this podcast. So please leave us a five-star rating review in your podcast service. Thank you for being part of the Cybertraps podcast. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to ixl.com slash B to learn how IXL's research proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's ixl.com slash B-E.